Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Binh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome our guest, former U.S. Navy Captain David Marquette, author of Leadership in Language. David, welcome. Hey, well, uh, thanks, and welcome all listeners, and congratulations on your recent uh, Best Teacher out of the 171 Award, Mark. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you mentioning that for sure. Uh, I made my mom proud, and she had um, bragging rights to their Mahjong games. That's all we care about (laughs) at the end of the day. That's all you can hope for in life. That's right. So, uh, David, why don't you tell us about your professional background? Yeah, uh, I was a avowed control freak. I came up in the United States Navy. As I was coming up through the Navy, the Navy gave me a definition of leadership. It's right here. Leadership can be defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and actions of others. Directing the thoughts, plans, and actions. Not directing the actions, but the plans and the thoughts of others. And this was, I staked my career on this and I was really good at it. And I was really good at telling people what to do and seeing how things were messed up. And they kept getting promoted because of this. And they made me a submarine uh, commander. And here I am, one of my proudest days, taking command of the USS Santa Fe. So, but I came in with this idea that I was the guy with all the answers. My job was to make decisions. Oh, how smart was I? And it was psychologically seductive and rewarding because all these people would come to me all day long. Oh, Captain, what should we do here? I'll turn left, go south, load this torpedo, do the maintenance. Oh, it's it's not a problem with the bearing. It's a problem with the upper seal. Oh, my gosh, I didn't see that. Oh, you're so smart. And I, man, I lived on that juice. And then it all fell apart. Because I was um, at the last minute, went to a ship uh, that I wasn't trained for, never been on, a different newest newest submarine in the fleet. Never, uh, I didn't, I didn't know any of the technical details. But I was, you know, old habits die hard. It really wasn't arrogance, I don't think, but habits die hard. And I was given orders, and uh, immediately, like the first day at sea. I gave an order. It didn't make sense on this ship. It didn't really make a problem, but it was basically like saying shift into second gear on an engine that only had one gear. And the officer parroted it. This was the scary thing. It wasn't so much I made a mistake, but I said to the officer, hey, why don't we do this? And he parroted it. And then the poor sailor who was supposed to turn the knob to make this happen kind of went like, I was standing behind him and he kind of goes like this. (laughs) And I'm like, Hey, uh, what's going on? He says, Captain, there is no second gear on the on this is a uh, electric propulsion motor. It was a backup motor to the main engines. There's no there's no second gear. I can laugh. It was horrifying. 
I, I was there to fix these guys. The reason I went there at the last minute was because they were the worst performing, worst morale, retained the fewest sailors in the Navy, and their captain quit. And they said, oh, at the last minute, they're like, you go. You have two weeks, not the normal 12 months to prepare. And uh, so I'm thinking, A, I have to double down on this approach that I've had that's been so successful in the past. Well, that was the start. And I got my guys together. Uh, we were running an exercise. I had stopped the exercise. Just stop everything. This, we got we to gotta talk about this. And I, I kind of was looking at my officers. And I was like, guys, we got a big problem. Uh, I was trained to give orders. You're trained to do what you're told. I actually wasn't trained on this submarine. Of course, they knew that because they knew their captain quit and I was airdropping. So I think we're in big, deep kimchi here. And they're all like looking, yeah, yeah, we figured that out two weeks ago. <laughs> showed up. And I, you know what I want to say, Mark? I wanted to say, I need you guys to speak up. I need you guys to be proactive. I need you guys to take initiative. I need you guys to feel empowered. I need you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys are all messed up. Ah. You guys need to change. And I had this kind of um, irreverent junior officer, one of the new guys. This guy's in the back, and he's like, well, Captain, how about you just don't give bad orders? Oh, jeez. And, and I was like, what? And now, I was a math guy. So remember, math, science, physics. And I was like, that's and, – and I stopped, and I didn't say anything. It was the smartest thing I ever did. I just started thinking about it. I said, the only way mathematically for me not to give a bad order is to never give any orders. Is that what you mean? And the Thinking he's going to say, no, no, of course not. He said, yes, that's exactly right. And so that was the path we set that. I said, you know what? I think you're right. Because whenever, like, whenever I gave an order, I didn't realize it. Kind of maybe I did, but I, whenever you give an order, you say, I'm the CEO, I'm the boss, I'm the whatever, do this. You might as well just hand the person a little card that says, and by the way, don't bother thinking. Leave your brain at home. I'm doing the thinking for everybody here. And what I needed was more thinking. I didn't need more compliance. And so the way to get more thinking is not to give orders and then give them a lecture about how they should speak up, is to stop giving goddamn orders. We say give information. Like, so I would say here, okay, so here's what we're trying to do or give intent. Here's what we really need to do. We need to reposition the submarine. We're going to shift from doing a SEAL team to protecting the aircraft carrier. We're going to shift from being in shallow water to deep water. We're going to shift from being targeting land targets to targeting sea targets or submarines. So you guys go come up with a list of everything we need to do and then come back and then they own it. And then you can't ever say later, like they say at Volkswagen or Boeing or Wells Fargo, well, I knew it was a dumb idea, but X, Y, Z told me to. So that's my, so that's my source. And I, so now I've kind of changed from being an engineer to a storyteller. And I, I wrote, turn the ship around to tell that story. And we now um, talk to companies and help people who want to create this environment where people are thinking. Before, before we leave that story totally, and I ask you about why you wrote the book, I'm just curious, the captain quits. And to get to captain is not, a, that's like being a full colonel, right, in the army, uh, to being a captain. I mean, it takes a lot to become a captain of a ship. I, I'm surprised that the captain would quit, and I'm surprised that the ship would be so poorly run. And I'm also surprised that a junior officer could be so flippant 
because you always get this impression that that doesn't happen in the Navy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all good questions. So first off, it, it you got to go through. You're right. You got to become the. So first of all, we call the captain of a ship a captain, no matter what the rank is. So a captain on, a, on an aircraft carrier is a captain by rank. A captain on a submarine is actually a commander, but we still call them captain because they're commanding officer. We call them captain. So right. But you're right. You do. You have to pass through a number of layers, and and there's a lot of um, narrowing down. So there's like ten or twelve junior officers on a submarine, but only one commanding officer. So it's basically a it's it's more than a ten to one. Uh, reduction scheme at, with all the filtering out. So only one in 10 uh, or 12 officers becomes commanding officer. But the, the pro, the, he, he had things going on in his life. His dad was dying. Uh, I think he was in the middle of a divorce. He had a certain way of looking at the world, which was he was the guy who's supposed to tell everyone what to do. He was distracted. The submarine was not doing well. Uh, so, so that was attracting more and more attention, more and more inspections from outside the Navy. Oh, we got to go check on the Santa Fe. And uh, to his credit, no, like we, no one's ever heard of a captain quitting. Captains get fired, but to his credit, and, my, and, and also changed through the course of my life. He said, "You know what? I'm not the guy to fix the ship anymore." He'd been there about uh, two years. Normally, it's wow. three. And and so I'm not the guy. And he sent in a letter to he wrote a letter to our our boss, and he said, "I'm uh, I resign effective as soon as you can find a replacement for me." So the Navy. So that's so so yeah, it it, it is very unusual. And yeah yeah, I mean I may be overplaying it, but there was the, you know the, I mean he wasn't a Naval Academy guy, so he didn't have full um, brainwashing about. About you got to just bow down and listen to your superiors, which I appreciated, and that helped us move forward as well. Interesting. Uh, why did you write this book? Uh, Turn the ship around, or leadership as language? Leadership as language was, which is we're focused on. Yeah, yeah. So, so I wrote Turn the Ship Around, which is the story, and then we started talking to companies. So for for um, eight years, I was out doing keynotes and consulting with companies, trying to help them create the same thing. And we always got to the same problem. And the same problem was they would maybe do some renaming and restructuring and and uh, do some training. But 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 then when I would sit in in meetings. Uh, or I would get reports of what a one-on-one -on -one counseling session sounded like, or, or a retrospective run by an Agile team. The language, the words were the same as the industrial age world I was trying to leave behind. And, and, and there was this, at the core level, like the most basic building block Lego that we had were the, was this language that we just kept repeating the same way we would say it in the industrial age. For example, a tech company would still have an all hands meeting. Well, you're not hired for your hands when you go to a tech company. You're hired for your brain. But we don't say that. We say all hands. Now, that's just a silly, harmless example. But uh, here's another example, a little bit worse. People, bosses would say, okay, I've listened to all, of the, all, the, um, all the arguments on the table. We're going to launch the product. So let's make it fun. 737 Max. But 
What it doesn't matter. We're, it doesn't matter whether it's a good or bad product. We're going to launch a product. Does that make sense? Good. Yes. Yeah. Right. And and that tag, that ad, does that make sense? Right. We good. Everybody happy? It's a binary quest. It's the, here's the structure. It's binary. So it's not like how good are we? It's binary. You got to be either good or not good. Two, it's phrased in a way to reaffirm the leader's position. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, boss, makes sense. What you want to say is, how does this not make sense? Because it's all, people are already primed to go along. It's already socially awkward to raise your hand, like you pointed out with the junior officer, say, boss, I think you're full of, full of crap here. And so, and then I asked the leader, I'd say, I asked him afterwards, I asked him, grab the CEO, I say, hey, are you interested in different opinions? Yeah, of course. Are you interested in being challenged? Are you interested in, in dissent? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Well, then why did you say this? I don't know. I didn't even think about it. So leadership as language is, is trying to open people's eyes to the fact that we do not deliberately choose our language. We're programmed by an industrial age to speak in a certain way. It's been handed down through generations. And work has changed, but the language has not. And that this we have these sort of set plays uh, around... Uh, it's basically an overbias towards action and doing and underbias towards thinking and deliberation. And there's consequences of that, but, but it's like, we're, we're, we just are parrots. We're just programmed. I guarantee you, Mark, you get on an airplane, you know, you know, the drill, the guy in front of you is trying to cram something in the overhead. Yeah. It's not going to fit. You can see that. And you say, don't do this. You say, hey, I don't think that's going to fit. <laughs> I can guarantee you how the person is going to respond. They're going to react, respond, reply. React, probably angrily respond. They're going to tell you why what they think is right. They're not going to say, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? So, so, But this is what we want to ask. This is what a good leader asks. We don't shut the people down. So in any event, that's what this leadership is language is about. Um, what, what do you mean uh, when you say leadership is a language? What do you mean by that? Leadership is a sport that involves other people. It, if you do something yourself, I swim the English Channel. Great. Good accomplishment. Good achievement. But I, I really be hard pressed to call that quote leadership. Leadership is creating an environment and a company where people can be at their very best and do their best and feel part of a team and have some sense of mission and purpose. So leadership always involves other people. How do we interact with other people? Through language. So leadership, soccer is enacted through kicking. Bicycling is enacted through pedaling your legs. Leadership is enacted through how you speak and your language. And it's this very basic building block. I, I, I think we spend too much time, and you're in the space, we spend so much time at this sort of theoretical, we teach it like history class. Well, here's some theories and some facts. If you learn that, you'll be a great leader. But it's all happens through language. I mean, I don't think we spend enough time on well, what words are going to come out of your mouth so I get hypothetical case study. I say, hey, you're running a meeting. You got to make a decision. I got five executives sitting at a table. They say, uh, you got to make a planning decision. What's the price of oil at the end of the year? Oil company, energy company. 
and say, come up with one answer for your table. And what happens? Someone says, uh, well, um, I think it's going to be $100. And someone else says, no, $95. And, and then I was like, well, why did you run it that way? Well, I don't know. Is there another way? Yeah, there is another way. But you just, like, we don't. We don't know it. We don't do it. What does the Navy do in training leaders that makes them unique? So I'm, my data is over 20 years old because that's uh, when I left the Navy. And I think there's some really great stuff. I spe specifically in the nuclear submarine field, we are so good at making sure that people know their job. And I think I, I talked I talk to the guys on a construction site the other day and um, they have a bunch of contractors on the site and there was a debate about whether this um, excavator could reach out and and swing and not hit this other thing. And this is like a basic math. It's, pretty, it's not that complicated. And so I said, well, what kind of an excavator is it? How, well, it's a, um, you know, um, uh, you know, a kabuki or something. And I got, okay, fine. How far does that arm reach out? I don't know, a long way. A long way is not an answer. 52 feet, six inches, that's an answer. So they don't know what they're doing. They have no value to add. They literally don't know what they're doing. I, I run across this all the time. Like, you don't, you, you don't know your job. Oh, no, I trust my people to know that stuff. And they feel they're, like they're proud of how ignorant they are. And this drives me crazy all the time. So I... So the Navy does a really good job. The problem is once we make people experts, I think of it, you want to be an expert because you're the last, you're the goalie, you're the last line of defense. Only if your team doesn't know the answer do you then step in with the answer. What we do in the Navy is we teach people to be experts and then we're the first people to speak. And we really deprive the team of grappling with the problem and coming up with the answer and showing like really showing what they know or they don't know. And then we say afterwards, oh, look what we did. But everyone knows really it wasn't us. Like it was really you and it feels false. So I think that's just some really great stuff the Navy does in training. And we actually practice things. There's a luxury that you have that, that businesses sometimes say, well, we don't really have that luxury. Well, we can just practice. We can say, okay, we're going to pick up a SEAL team in two days. We're going to practice it today. We're going to practice it tomorrow twice. And we're going to practice in daylight, we can practice at night, and then we're going to actually pick them up. And uh, I think this, this idea that of actually practicing things is really, really helpful. I, I wonder uh, why has the Navy's way of uh, training leaders, has it evolved over time or has it stayed essentially the same? Because like having the captain answer everything, is that so people don't panic? And knowing that they can trust the captain's decisions, but why isn't it, you know, because society has changed, right? Over over the past even 50 years, society has changed. Work, yeah. I, I'll go this far with you, Mark. Work has definitely changed. And what we say we want has changed. And what we recognize, the highest performing teams on the planet work when everyone is contributing and everyone is thinking. Right. Now, but there's there's a time for compliance. Like if if the, this building I'm in catches on fire and a fireman comes in and says, 
I don't, I don't want to say, hey, you, let's do a brainstorming session to figure out what we would need to do next. Like, I just like, what? how do I save my life? Like, get down your hands and knees, crawl, put this blanket over your head, crawl, follow me. Okay, so there's time for compliance, but there's a time for building um, uh, thinking capacity. I, I, when it comes all the way down to it, the Navy has changed. This definition that I showed you was essentially the definition since World War II, all the way. And I went in 1981, uh, or I went in 77, graduated in 81. So this was the definition for all that uh, Cold War, World War II and the Cold War. And now it's a, it's sort of an act, it's a, it's a bunch of PhDs wrote it. I don't really like the definition, but I think when push comes to shove, leaders, bosses worry about giving up control because they think they're going to have, they might have some really bad outcomes. Like someone's going to launch a, a torpedo in the South China Sea at a Chinese destroyer and cause World War III or, or something. And so what they say is to themselves, I think what they say is, look, I'm going to be in control. It's going to be a controlling thing. People are going to train people first and foremost to do what they're told. And then we're going to sprinkle some fairy dust and hope that they do some thinking later. And I think they 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 it's a, it's sort of this deal that I'm going to truncate the worst performing behavior, real, realizing I might give up the best, the possibility of humans being at their very best because I'm losing that. But I'm willing to make that deal. It's a false thinking in my mind. Because the only way, the only way you get things like Volkswagen, Wells Fargo, Boeing, and these corporate things, you have to have a compliance culture. Because there's no way 200 engineers at Volkswagen just independently said, hey, let's all be jackasses and try and cheat this diesel thing. It's because they get pressure from one misguided person or a person that they don't even really need to be misguided it just needs to be do what you're told and this is what we really want and they go back and say well we really can't make a diesel engine that has the same performance and lower emissions without it costing more now i don't want to hear that go make it what happen and then we get what we get and then we're like oh i'm so surprised this happened oh and so you read about this quite often you need the right so step one in any autocrat autocracy is create compliance, but that's how you get people doing bad things. You need that. Um, throughout the book, you write about blue work and red work. What is that? We use our brains. Well, the way we came to it was we studied the words. And there were essentially two different kinds of words, verbs. There were doing verbs and there were thinking verbs. So doing verbs would be produce, ship, um, launch, build, deliver, things like that. Then there were thinking words, um, imagine, create, decide. And in the doing side, we want, we're allergic to variability. If I'm shooting a basketball, variability means it's two inches this way, two inches this way. I don't want that. I want to go right down through the net. Variability is an enemy to doing. 
Variability is an ally to thinking. And thinking, we're over here saying, oh, I want more ideas. So when I sit in a meeting and I say, does that make sense? Or I say, hey, so I think the answer is 100. What do you guys think? Well, I just reduced variability. Me speaking first, does that make sense? And, and so we have language patterns that are over-biased towards reducing variability. The reason is because we just came through the Industrial Revolution, which was the manufacturing, which was about doing. And what we had is, oh, a separate group of people is going to do the thinking. And so the organization is biased towards that. So blue work is thinking, red work is doing. And so what you want to do is you think about the cycle of work in terms of are we doing thinking or doing? And the language should change. Hey, we're in a meeting. So um, Agile is a perfect example. We have a sprint planning session. We're going to make a decision. What products are we going to, or what features are we working on over the next two weeks? Then we're going to do it. Now, computer engineers get angry with me because, oh, you don't understand. There's a lot of thinking that happens in here. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure there is. And there's small decisions, but they're decisions of how. They're not decisions of what and why. And then we're going to get at the end, we're going to run a retrospective. We're going to raise our heads up. It's like on the submarine, we'll raise the periscope, look around. Okay, how do we do? What, like, what are we doing? <laughs> why are we doing it? Okay, let's make another decision. So your life at work should consist, you should, we imagined it like a series of these little H's. And then so you have the and then we have another decision. Okay, now let's do it. You don't want to always be going back and forth. You need to settle into doing something for a while. Otherwise, you're overdriving change in the in the organization. And then, but you, but the time when you schedule this, when we're when are we going to put our pencils down and event? You schedule that when you go into the doing work. So I see, like we made this mistake in my company, where we made a revision of the website. So we made a decision. And then we built the website, but we never said, oh, let's run it for two months and take data and then see how it's performing. So we're just going on and on. And meantime, I'm like, well, what's going on with the website? How's it performing? Well, I don't know. So that was a mistake. So we just, blue work is thinking, red work is doing. And your brain, your brain, using your brain in two different ways. Uh, we were talking about this before when uh, talking about the captain of the U.S. Santa Fe. Uh, you said he he they had a can do uh, uh, culture and it's not always a good thing. Uh, why is that? Because we're always brought up that a can do culture is like the ultimate. Yeah. I. <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for the can do culture. I mean, I think I probably. Um, like I'm an open water swimmer now and there's times when it's been really cold or really far or really tired or really dark or really scary or really choppy, whatever. And I'm like, oh man, I'm not going to do it. And I persevere and, 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 and I'm, I'm better for it. And, uh, but the problem is you got to know when to stop. We all know stories of, for example, teams going up Everest and and they get that like within sight of the summit, but they they're past the turnaround time. But they're so close, and 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 the guides say, "Well, I know this person paid a hundred grand to be here," and the person's like, "I paid. I'm so close." And we say, even though it's past our turnaround time, it's like, and then they die. Uh, and 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 there's 
examples. So in the Navy, let's say we reduce the number of people on ships and we just say, you keep going, you keep going. There's no feedback to the system if no captain ever says, hey, I can't run my ship with this few people because stuff is breaking and we're up all the time. Everyone's losing sleep. And like, there's no real clear breaking points. So you got to decide, okay, well, when am I going to raise my hand? And those kind of people generally aren't rewarded in the organization. But it sure, I sure wish like the Boeing guys had said, had been more of an I can't when they launched 737 MAX or the Volkswagen guys or, or the whatever, hey, we can't. I know, Mark, I don't know. I notice like, I keep seeing this hand raised and I don't know if you're doing that at the end or what you're doing. Um, we have folks who are not able to get in. And so we will, I'm trying to help them. Uh, okay, them all right, in. okay, all right. Uh, so we will uh, continue to go. You write the Santa Fe was the worst sub in the fleet. You said the change you never were giving or another order. Uh, please change the effects of the culture, morale, and performance. And you talked a little bit about this. But what did you ultimately do that really made, uh, swayed the difference here? On Santa Fe, we changed our language. Uh, our language changed in, in a couple, th couple different ways. Uh, number one, I outlawed the word they. People, I, I, all day long, people came to me and say, well, I couldn't do this because they, because they, because they, and they were, all, they were all often referring to people on the submarine, people they slept next to in a bunk. And as this, so you can't use the word they anymore. I'm not going to talk to you. You have to use the word we. So we started saying, well, we, like, the chiefs and the enlisted men were referring to the officers as we and vice versa. And engineering was referring to operations as we. And, and it sounded like our brains were like, er, it doesn't really sound right. For me, it was fine because as a captain, everyone was we. But if you're down in the engineering department, you wanted to say they, those knuckleheads over there in supply didn't bring my part. But eventually the, the, the brain reconnected, made connections grow together that made it. So when I saw you, Mark, and I knew you were over in the other department, it felt like we, it felt like you were in my tribe, which meant I could, could trust you. I could cooperate with you. So number one, number two, we changed it from a language of permission to a language of intent, which shifted it from a bias for status quo to a bias for action. So when people, so we taught the crew, hey, when you come talk to your boss at whatever level, say what you see, say what you think, say what you intend to do. Captain, uh, there's a, well, this would go to the engineer. Engineer, there's a funny noise coming from the pump. I think the upper bearing is going bad. I intend to schedule time to shut it down and conduct maintenance, replacing the upper bearing on the pump what I see, what I think, what I intend to do. Now, the reason you go in this order is because you're moving from certainty to most certainty to least certainty, which means you're moving from least vulnerable to most vulnerable. It's easy to say, hey, there's a chirping noise coming from a pump. You can't be wrong. You heard it. But now I say, well, what's causing it? Well, now you... I, I, I think it's coming. I think it's a problem with the upper bearing, but it could be something else. Uh, but we would then then we trained them to say add a percentage. We were living in a binary world. You had to be right. I think it's the upper bearing. Are you sure? 
binary, binary. So we say upper bearing likelihood 80%. I think we're shooting the wrong target, likelihood 5%, but it's pretty important, 5%. So, so that really helps with the psychological safety and letting people speak up. And then we go to action. And then what we, what we were programmed to say was get permission. And permission means I got to go all the way up through everybody. And if anyone says no, then that's it. So permission is designed to stop things from happening. And it always ended up with me. So captain uh, requests permission to submerge the ship. And I would say submerge the ship. So I'm still given an order, which is what I chose. I vowed not to do. So I say, you can just come to me. So you intend to do captain. Here's the situation. Here's what I think is going on. I intend to submerge the ship. I say, okay, great. Or, or I could say, no. I always had veto power and I always could ask questions. But shifting it to intent made the onus on them. So instead of me leaning in, leaning in is bad advice. You want to lean back. Get them to lean into you if you're the leader. You lean into your boss. Uh, why did you wait, right? Waiting for people to prove themselves to build trust with you. You needed to entrust them. Uh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Trust comes first. So, so people would say, uh, so we have a structure for, hey, what do you think? What do you see? And, and get permission is on there. So maybe a brand new officer, I start that officer, hey, when it comes to submerging the ship, you're at level four. You're going to tell me, you're going to get permission, and I'm going to give you an order and authorize submerging the ship. So you you can do that. People would say, "What? I, well, this is what I would say. When I when you prove that I can that you're trustworthy with bigger decisions, I'll then give you bigger decisions." Well, how can I prove I'm trustworthy with bigger decisions <laughs> if I only have these little decisions <laughs> that prove myself? So so with intent, we can give bigger decisions, and I still can veto it. So let's say the engineer comes to me. Now his job, he comes to me and he says, um, I'm going to change the oil in this pump. Now that's something the engineer can do all on his own. I say, fine, whatever. Then he comes to me and says, you know what? I think we need to position the ship over here away from this um, other activity because X, Y, Z. Well, now he's talking about moving the submarine. And that's not in his Daily, that's above his level. But if you never let him come and talk to you about that, you don't know, does he have any understanding? Like, can he go to the next level where he's going to be a second in command and exo, where now you're going to make decisions about positioning the ship if he never gets a chance to position the to make those? So we always would say, you got to give, you got to trust first. I give this a story. So let's say my, my daughter's got a bedtime. She's, she's grown up now, but you know, back in the day, eight o'clock. And she comes and says, Dad, I want a bedtime at midnight. I'm like, no, you stay at 8 o'clock. Once you prove you can stay up till midnight, we'll let you stay up till midnight. It's like, well, how can I prove it? So what you, you don't say, fine, do it forever. What you say is, great, let's run an experiment. You can stay up to midnight for two weeks. That's then we're going to remember. So that's now we're down in the red work. Okay, now we're going to evaluate at the end. How'd that go? Or maybe you just say, hey, let, you know, let's just do 10 o'clock for two weeks. See how that goes. Oh, that's fine. Blue work decision. Midnight now, two weeks. You don't say, great, oh, forever for the rest of the universe, existence of the universe, you can go to midnight. And so when you think about things this way, it's a lot easier to get stuff done.
It sounds like a very scientific approach to this. Well, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I said, I was a math and science. Um, I took quantum mechanics and astrophysics and those kind of courses. And so, our look at when we look at words and language, we, that's the approach we did. So, for example, the first level, one of the first level analysis we'll do on a team is we'll just count words. Uh, let's say as a seven-person C-suite team in a company, and they have an, they they have a weekly meeting ops meeting whatever it is and we just count the number of words that each person says and what you'll typically see is a skew where the more senior people will say more words and the more junior people say fewer words it's an it's a known uh pattern and we can measure the skew and the more the steeper the skew the more fragile the team's decision making um, machinery is because we're more dependent on the CEO or the senior people being right, and the more you can level that. So, so when we go to teams, we don't talk. We don't talk too much about oh, you really need to listen or like what does that mean? Anyways, I heard that forty-seven times. We just say, I want you at the next meeting. I want you to see what you can. How even can you get to share a voice? And that means you got to tamp down their language. And look to the people who didn't contribute much and say, hey, Mark, you've been quiet. How do you see it? And you say, you know what? I think you guys are all screwed up. <laughs> but, but we would have been deprived of that perspective had we not thought this way. Um, please tell us the six new leadership plays you advocate and why you consider them new. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure they're necessarily quote new, but they're um, they're new in terms of being default. So the six, the new plays are control the clock, collaborate, commit, complete, improve, and connect. And I'm I'm trying to make an A B choice here. So we used to obey the clock. We feel the pressure of production, and we have to keep moving forward. Control the clock means setting those times when I'm going to put my pencil down and I'm going to shift into thinking mode and make a decision. Agile has this built in. The old play was coerced. I want to get people to do what I decided they need to do. Even when we say, I think you're collaborating, even, even people say, oh, I think we collaborated on that, it's really coercion in, in disguise. We don't say it. We say, oh, I motivated or I inspired, but it's really coercion. Comply. Then what people, and the default is do what you're told. What we want, when people choose themselves, they're committing. And then continue. This comes with obey the clock. The, the bias, the reason people don't speak up is because they don't want to be wrong. They don't want to stop production. And so we want to complete. We want to stop the work and look at it and let there be an equal bias to go either stop or keep going. Not 99%, we're gonna keep going. We all, this happens in hospitals all the time. Surgeon comes in, oh, we're gonna do a, uh, they started doing like these initial checks, uh, check with the team. Yeah. I, I've seen, we, live, we have some hospitals as uh, nurses organizations, as clients. This is what it sounds like. So we got Mr. Marquet here, right? Yeah. And he's here to get his left leg amputated, huh? Um, so you got everything you need? Oh, yeah. Any questions? No. Let's go. The, it's 99 bias, 99% bias towards happening. I've never seen one where someone 
the surgeon said, you know what? We're actually not ready for this. We got to reschedule. Get them out of here. We got to reschedule. Never happens. Why? Because we're not making a decision because the bias is we're going to do it. So it's just a matter of fulfilling, um, fulfilling a good feeling that we can do this. Then there's we, we're proving ourselves all the time. Oh, look how good I am. Look how smart I am. Look how much I contributed. And what you want to do is think about improve. If you're stuck in prove, you're, you're allergic to feedback and you're allergic to all the things that are actually helping you get better. You got to give up looking good in order to actually get better. You got to take video of yourself swimming and look at it. Oh, well, in my head, look how good I swim. Oh, I look at video. That's not me. I can't be that bad. <laughs> We all I had to see a video of me giving a keynote. That is the most triggering, horrifying thing I've ever seen. And then we have to connect as human beings. In the book, you write about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, uh, one of the worst ecological disasters in history, and 11 people died. How could it have been avoided except for the hierarchical system that prevented them from avoiding the disaster? Please tell us a little bit about the story and what organizations can learn from it. Yeah, so most everyone will probably remember the Deepwater Horizon. So Deepwater Horizon was an oil well in the Gulf of Mexico. It was owned by BP. It was operated by um, some, some other BP and some consulting organizations underneath them. And uh, there's a, it was early in the, in the life of the well where they had basically drilled the well and confirmed this oil. And so they were shifting it over to a production well. And there's a couple steps you need to make. And in that, there was an, an error where the pressure below got better, bigger than the pressure above, so that all the, the gas trapped deep in the earth under high pressure started coming up. And then a subsequent error that the devices uh, that should have prevented that from keep coming up the entire pipe up to the platform didn't stop it. And so they're they're on uh, there's not a, a precise transcript, but there's a pretty good investigation where people were told, "Hey, what happened? What did you say?" and that kind of stuff. So we have a pretty good sense of what was being said in the control room uh, when this was happening. And the uh, there's a final line of defense, which is called an um, EDF. It's like emergency disconnect. It's like these big hydraulic clamps which actually sever the pipe, crimp it shut. It's, they're reluctant to use this because it's a, once you do that, you got to start all over again. And so it's very costly. So what's happened is the, the oil's come up, the gas has come up, it's ignited. It's, it's on fire the way you see in the picture behind me. And there's a person standing at the button where this red button is, it's got a little cover on it and you lift it up and you push it because they don't want people accidentally pushing the button to, to clamp it. And he's saying, hey, uh, can I, should I eat, should I do this? So that's the first question. Why doesn't he just say, I'm doing, I'm shutting this down. The thing is already burning on fire. Doesn't say that. It says, should I do this or can I, so, some, something like getting permission. And someone in the control room 
says, yeah, 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 do it. And then someone else in the control room says, no, you can't do it. You're the, we're not authorized to say authorize that. We need to get the OIM, which is the offshore installation manager. In other words, someone back in Louisiana or Houston, not on the platform, has to authorize us to do this. So are you kidding me? Like they don't even know we have this explosion and fire and people are are, are dying out here, but we supposed to. And so some of the, some, then someone overrode that and said, no, 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 like do it. Like it's like blame me later kind of language. And then he finally pushes the button. And we're delaying saving people's lives. Now, when we, when we look at that, and then the other part was like the team getting up to this point, you see all those plays that I talked about. It was obey the clock. It was, it was, it was a can-do team. We're going to we gotta obey the production schedule. People were reluctant to raise their hands and say there were problems. And that as a result of these problems, we had to start over or really take a big step back. It was like, no, no, press on. So all that cultural stuff, which we think is um, really good, got us in trouble. And then, of course, you know, it was like one of the worst ecological disasters on the planet and a lot of people died. This has happened with lots of our uh, organizations where they're wanting to uh, keep the costs down hit the profit when somebody wants to tell them uh, that there's a problem, then they look like they're a malcontent for even telling them that there's yeah. a problem. And so hence they just don't want to tell them and they're just praying that everything works out. Right. Yeah. Well, let's see. Costa Concordia, airplane crashes, Wells Fargo, Volkswagen, Ford Pinto. Um, so look, this happens a lot. But it also doesn't happen a lot. I mean, thousands of planes take off every day, fly safely, land safely. And so we we need to strike a balance. We don't want chicken littles all the time just getting attention by stopping everything. No. But I think in most cases, the, we don't have a structure for dealing with, okay, at what moment are we going to ask the question, are we ready to go on to the next step? And then really ask the question and then move on. So what happens is there's no sort of forum for doing that. We don't have a blue or we don't have a, a retrospective meeting on, hey, how's it going? Are we going to make a decision to go to the next step in the oil well sequence or the next step in whatever it happens to be so the job of leaders is to build this h-shaped think do think structure into work so that people know i'm going to get a chance to to say hey i think we're all screwed up and it really will be listened to you write that that never underestimate the power of fear to distort common sense in environments with a strong culture of control and compliance don't we see that with great political powers and once great corporations that hinder creative thinking and initiative? And also, why do organizations continue to make that mistake over and over again? First part of that question was pretty easy. Yeah, of course you do. And you can see it all. You can see it all over the place. Um, 
why, why, as to why we keep make, doing this, there's a bug in human wiring. Maybe it's not a bug. Maybe it's helped us do a lot. But there's a bug in human wiring that we want to be in control. We want to take charge. We want to give orders. And we don't like people who don't listen to what we're saying. So it's sort of like this. It's like that scene in World War Z where all the zombies are like climbing on top of each other, they get over the wall, like all piling up on top of each other, clawing our way to the top, and uh, using fear as a mechanism and to to get other to to gain status and control and power. And um, it's uncomfortable. I'll tell you, for me as a submarine commander, saying I'm not going to give any orders. What do you think? It was not comfortable. We give our executive teams, so our coaches and, and people who want to get certified as a coach and then executive teams, one of the first things we have them do is you say, go out to a restaurant and you, you can't choose your meal. You have to get the server to choose for you. And they'll say, oh, you mean, hey, server, what's better, chicken or fish? Oh, I recommend the chicken tonight. Okay, I'll have the chicken. You say, eh, you just chose chicken. You can't know what it's going to be until the server puts it in front of you. So in other words, you it's it's empowerment. So we don't give lectures on empowerment. We just tell them, go practice it. And then they come back and say, well, how did it go? And then there's all these wonderful, like stories range from, well, I couldn't do it. Either I couldn't do it or they wouldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Well, if you can't get a server to choose for you in a restaurant, you think you're going to get your team at work to make decisions about what features to put in software? No. The same human things are going on. And it's always about fear. It's about safety. So you didn't make it safe that, oh, he thought I was going to make a bad review or whatever. Maybe he didn't say that, but that's what people are thinking. It's not safe. So all these things come out. On the other hand, you get, we had experience. You know Chick-fil-A? Do you guys have Chick-fil-A over there? Oh, I love Chick-fil-A. Yeah, Chick-fil-A. So I, I had a guy said, yeah, I tried this with Chick-fil-A. Now, normally people say, I tried it. I went to, um, you know, Outback or some kind of thing like that. And so I went to Chick-fil-A. I was like, oh, how'd it go? This is amazing. I said, I went, I turned the server. Step one, you got to connect with a person. And then you got to give them, we, we always say small and choice, small and choice makes it safe. So you, you got to give them a choice. They almost always say, hey, can you help me? I'm on this uh, decision detox program. I'm not supposed to make any decisions. I'd like you to just choose for me whatever you want. It's going to be fine. And then I'll have it. I'm, I'm And by the way, I'm allergic to peanuts. Okay, great. So kind of says, this is what I said. And then the server, she looks back at me. She says, does it have to be on the menu? And he's like, uh, no. <laughs> so he gets a custom built meal at a place. Like, I, like who, I didn't think of that. I never would have. For him, she says, look, I'm going to make you what I would make my dad. Like what I would want him to eat. And it wasn't on the menu. It was like, obviously, chicken. <laughs> But, but it was amazing. So we have these we have these range of experiences. We we have we we would have we have things that we would never have had. We 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 have the height of experience. But what's the cost? I gotta give up control. I gotta be the one that says, "Oh no, I have number three and supersize it." 
We got two questions from the audience. The first question is, what do you think when the CEO of BP went sailing with his son as the oil rig was burning? And what view do you have on his behavior as a leader? And then we have another question after that. Yeah, it was horrific. It was clearly horrific behavior. It's tone deaf. It's it's abdication of responsibility. It's like, oh, everything's fine. It's It was terrible. Um, so I think... I think it'd be hard to find, like, I don't know what the heck the guy was, was thinking. We, we help people with coke. One of the things we tell people to do, because we're saying, hey, go make decisions, get your team to make decisions. Well, I want them to make good decisions. Okay, how do you make good decisions? Think of yourself as your own coach. Don't, what happens is we're immersed in it. Like, oh, I'm the CEO, I'm reading the news. I feel like it's all happening to me. Well, it'll just blow over. I want to send a signal. Everything's fine. So I'm going to go sailing. Whatever his thinking was, I don't know. It was idiotic. So you say, then you can take yourself out. And one of the things we can do, well, what's the coach? Do? Well, the coach has a long view. Hey, six months from now, I'm looking back to today. What do I wish? <laughs> what do I wish David, that David would have done? Probably not go sail. Um, and you say, well, what am I going to do? I'm not going to stop the oil. Yeah, but it's a signal. So, yeah, that was horrific. What was the other thing? Uh, why did you write that so much feedback does not really help and actually has a negative impact? And what's the best way to provide feedback that is beneficial to everyone? So I have a weird approach. I, look, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, can I give you some feedback? You know, I'm like, no, go away. I don't, I don't really care about your feedback. Um, now. I like feedback at a theoretical level, but I don't really know you and I'm not really listening. So don't train people to give feedback, train people to invite feedback. So when, I, when I'm practicing getting my swimming better, I'll take a video of myself. I send it to my swim coach who's in Australia. He comments of it, he chops it up and says, oh, you're doing all this, I do this. He doesn't say you're doing all this wrong, but he says, you know, okay, try this extend your arm over this way a little bit more, blah, blah, blah. It's great. I love it. So you want to invite feedback. You want a culture where people are always asking, hey, how did I do? How could I be better? And in that culture, people are keen to hear feedback. Now, when you do give feedback, you want it to be about the task, not about the person. Oh, you were wonderful. No. Hey, I, I understood as you were giving your keynote, you said there were three things that, that I wanted you to remember, but I can only remember two. Or you gave this great keynote, I'm really inspired to do something, but I'm not sure what to do. So, so, so now it's about the, the, the thing, not about how bad I am. And so it's easier. The other thing about feedback, we, so like in a retrospective, we, we ask the team, frame it like it's happening to someone else in the future. So you say, hey, if a bunch of our friends are the next product team over in the company, we're doing this next week. What would we have? What would we want them to have learned from our experience? So I kind of decouple it from, oh, I was the guy who made the mistake with the um, design, or you know, whatever it happens to be. So decouple it from you. Get your ego out of it, and think about the future. And that also helps get your ego out of it. How is AI changing leadership? Yeah, I have no. I don't know. Um, I think. Or how do you like, think it will potentially well, change? So our general. So here's our general. Here's here's our 
hypothesis. So far in the computer, um, in, 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 the, in the progress of humanity, we've gotten really good at red work. Computers are really good at red work. Humans are not very, so this is a factory before World War II. This is repeated, continuous, tedious, mind-boggling work. Requires attention. And I got to put seven wraps on the radio, not eight, not six, two pickles, not one, not three. It's humans are not good at this. Computers are. So the world, so, so what's happening is this red work, the value of red work is going to zero because we won't need humans to do it anymore. And so I think one of the things we're seeing in society is the people whose livelihood is based upon them doing red work sense decreased power, decreased demand, my, my job, I'm being replaced by computers. But humans will have a role always in this, in the thinking. We see, when we introduce automation in the submarine, people are generally okay with the automation happening after the decision, but not the, before. So for example, if I say, um, make this, uh, drive the submarine to 300 feet, if I can type in 300 feet and push go, and the submarine, the computer controls the submarine and takes it down to 300 feet. People are okay with that. But to say the computer is going to decide that we should be at 300 feet, people get really nervous about. It. So we always we always think the automation comes after the decision, not before. So I I don't know. I haven't seen anything from AI that's made me think. Uh, I mean, it, it's based on everything the humans have done in the past. So the, inno the innovation is, is not really going to be there for a while because it's just simply repeating. It's based on la large language models, so it's repeating the language that's heard in the past. So it's going to continue to repeat an industrial age language until we humans change it. Uh, a question from the audience. How do you go around the problem when there's nothing positive to say uh, when you want to give feedback to individual as a leader? Well, yeah, that's, that doesn't make really anybody happy. I, I would always try and start with observation, and I would see what, what does a person know? Do, do they? One thing that made the submarine work is people were self-regulating. So when they came up to me and say, well, I intend to change, uh, shut down the half the engine room, and change this uh, do maintenance on the pump for six hours, and it turns out it didn't fix the problem, then they would come to me and say, I don't know what happened, Kevin. We, we messed up. We didn't analyze it enough. We didn't look at it carefully enough. Like They would hold themselves accountable. So if you're telling someone, okay, I want you to do this with this team and this time with this many outputs, and here's the budget you have, then I'm going to hold you accountable. It's like, well, really, I, I didn't get to choose any of those. So... So, but you want to start for me with observation. Hey, what did you notice? Now, the 15th time you do that, maybe you have to let them go. I'm, I, I didn't fire anyone, but I'm not saying there's never a time when you, you need to get rid of someone. 
I'm, um, our last question, because we've run out of time here, um, I thought it was interesting about how to appreciate and utilize outliers who vote against the majority. Talk about that, please. So I was doing a, I was doing a, a, um, a master class with a pharmaceutical, brand new pharmaceutical startup pharmaceutical company making skin cream for eczema, which I happen to have. And uh, their first product, they they were they had funded, they got funded, they got C money around ABC, whatever. And uh, so their first product has got through the wickets and it's about to go out. And they got to make a decision: what do we price the product at? And I had we had like fifteen members of the senior executive team. And uh, so. Normally, the way this would work is someone would say, well, I think it should be $500. Typically, it'd be around $500. And blah, blah, blah. We'd argue $400, $600. We'd end up at $550, whatever. So I, looked, so I said, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is everyone take a card and write down what you think it should be. Independent, before discussion. I look at the CEO. I say, hey, CEO, what do you think the highest and lowest numbers are going to be on these cards? And he says, uh, maybe $300, $700. Okay, everyone flip over your card. The lowest number was zero, and the highest number was 1,200. So first of all, there's a lot more variability in the group than we think there is because we run the meeting in the wrong way. So then I said, okay, great. Now who talks? All those, those, those six people that said some number between 400 and 600? No, we already know that position. Let's hear from the outliers. So the person said zero, great. What's the case? Now, if no one votes zero, you got to make the case up yourself. What's the case for zero? This person said, and this is, by the way, there was a bunch of news about uh, one of the companies that like made the price of the EpiPen like four times overnight. Yeah. Said, said, look, it's our first product. We've already sunk all the money into build and building the thing. How much positive, like we would generate so much news by making this price zero. It would pay for itself because we're here for the long run. It was a great argument. And then the person had 1,200, they had, they had a reason for that too. So, and then, and then you got to decide. So whoever owns, in this case, maybe it's the CEO because it's the first product. Maybe it's the product, um, the person who owns the product. They got to decide. So someone decides, but now we're deciding based on all that in our head, which wasn't there before. So that's how you use outliers. So we always say, vote first, then discuss, embrace the outliers, and always go to the minority first. And you got to squish the majority and you got to control the conversation. Otherwise, the people who think like the CEO and know what the CEO wants and the people who are in the majority are going to speak first. And then we're just going to reduce variability when what we wanted to do was the opposite. David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, your back was fabulous. I think the Navy should be considering using utilizing your book. Get them up. Oh, I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> well, get them into the 21st century for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone, have a wonderful day. Again, um, I'm sorry that you some folks had uh technical difficulties with Eventbrite. Uh it's unusual. So I thank you again for still coming and listening to the show today. And we'll see you all next Friday. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. 
Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.